You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that we can be here at Michigan Camp Meeting this year. And as we open your word this morning, may your spirit be our guide, and may we hear your truth and apply it to our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You want to open your Bibles to 1 John? I want to begin with a little background. Have you ever heard of Gnosticism? It comes from the Greek gnosis, which means knowledge. Esoteric knowledge, which is uh, knowledge reserved for a special group alone. I should have prayed for my voice. It was a combination of mythology and Jewish, <clears throat> Oriental and Greek philosophy that was a major threat to Christianity during the first three centuries. It claimed that all matter was evil, including humans. And that was in contrast to uh, Genesis 1.31 that, that says, And God saw everything that he had made, including humans, and behold, it was very good. So because all matter was evil, according to Gnosticism, divinity could not be united with humanity. So the incarnation was rejected, replacing the idea that the divine Christ entered into the man Jesus at his baptism and departed sometime before the crucifixion. So only the man Jesus died on the cross. Furthermore, Gnosticism borrowed Christian terminology and used it to uh, camouflage ideas that were not in harmony with Christian beliefs. Now, positively, Gnosticism served to stimulate Christian thinking and actually compelled the early church to uh, crystallize their beliefs based on the teachings of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. It stimulated the development of the New Testament. The Gospel of John and the three letters of John, all by the same person who also wrote Revelation, were actually written to resist Gnosticism. An example of this is that in this letter, 1 John, he makes it very clear that the spirit of Antichrist in the form of Gnosticism was already at work in early Christianity. He says in chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, he says, 
Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. We can thank God that we have some of the most doctrinally powerful literature in the New Testament because of this intense need to clarify Christian truth in the face of the Gnostic threat. So that's what Gnosticism did positively. But negatively, it introduced ideas into the developing church and the remnants of those ideas are still with us today. Gnosticism's emphasis on spirits in the unseen world can still be found in the idea of the conscious state of the dead and the immortality of the soul. The soul which is good, you see, <laughs> is separate as separated from the flesh matter, which is evil. And it's separated from the flesh at death. And that's not the teaching of the New Testament. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, but don't turn there now. Also, Gnosticism's idea of a hierarchy of, of spirits can still be found in the church's veneration of saints, which is also not a teaching of the New Testament. And also the influence of Gnosticism led to the acceptance of tradition and the uh, ecclesiastical authority of the church as equal to the authority of the Bible, at least up until the Protestant Reformation. And it also rejected, Gnosticism did, the Old Testament and the law of God in the Ten Commandments, which is not a teaching of the New Testament as the Apostle Paul makes very clear in, in Romans. And it, it is to this uh, in particular that John speaks in 1 John 3, 4 through 10. Biblical Christianity recognizes that although matter is not intrinsically evil, humans have inherited moral corruption through Adam and Eve's disobedience. The Bible identifies that as sin, and John gives us a very clear biblical definition of sin. He says in chapter 3, 
verse 4, sin is lawlessness. The King James says it's the transgression of the law. Sin is the transgression of God's law. And all transgression of his law is sin. Sin is also the disregard of God's law. Lawlessness. Is that still with us today? Is that why Jesus said to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount at the very beginning of his ministry, speaking of the law and the prophets, Matthew 5, 18, 19, he said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of the commandments and teaches others to do it, to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me ask you, who defines sin? God. And where does he do that? In the Ten Commandments. No law, no sin, and no need for us for a Savior. If you throw out the law of God, you throw everything out. You throw out the gospel. You throw out the cross. Why? Because law and gospel are intimately related, theologically and experientially. And speaking of Jesus, John says, chapter 3, verse 5, and listen carefully, Jesus says this, or John says this of Jesus. He appeared to take away sins. He doesn't say to take away the, the guilt of sin, but to take away sins, as he says in chapter 3, verses 4 and 8 and 9. He repeats himself. He says the, the practice of sin, sinning. And notice also that John does not say that Jesus came to take away the law, but to take away sin. The law of God is not the problem. Sin is the problem. And while retaining the law, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. What, what Jesus removes is the transgression of the law. How? By his grace, <clears throat> he empowers the believer 
not to habitually practice sinning, but to habitually practice righteousness instead. He saves us from transgressing the law of God. And my friends, that's real victory. Jesus came, John says, chapter 3, verse 8, to destroy the works of the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. And the proof of the power of his grace is, 1 John 3, 6, no one who abides in him, Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And then in verse 9 he says, no one born of God, listen, makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So the born-again believer lives and behaves differently because he or she is a new person and further proof of the power <coughs> of Jesus' grace is that chapter 2, verse 29, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Chapter 3, verse 7, whoever, listen, practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Now, I want you to notice that John does not say that one is righteous because he or she practices righteousness, but because he or she has been born of God. He says that the one who is righteous by virtue of the, earth, by virtue of the new birth practices righteousness. Now, what is the secret of this divine power, this tremendous life-changing power? How is it possible to practice righteousness? By abiding. John says, chapter 3, verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And also, in chapter 3, verse 9, and listen to this, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning because God's seed abides in him. Therefore, one who has been born of God cannot keep on sinning because in chapter 2, verse 14, verse 14, he says, The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. 
And listen to what he says in chapter 2, verse 24 to 27. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, that is the knowledge of Christ, and you have no need that, that anyone representing the, ant <coughs> the Antichrist deception should teach you but his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as he has. It has taught you, abide in him. There you have the, the awesome and the enduring gift of the gospel that one who habitually abides, that is to say, continues in union with the Savior, in whom there is no sin, is not just forgiven, but is empowered and enabled by His grace not to keep on sinning, but to practice righteousness instead. It's all about Jesus, my friend. He, he keeps the born-again believer from habitually sinning and nothing else and no one else can do that. Christ is our righteousness and he is the source of our righteousness. One who abides in Christ will grow in Christ and develop a character like his. And when he comes again, John says, they will be like him. So when the law of God is ignored, disregarded, or thrown out, the Gnostic way of thinking produces indifference to sin. It leads to a lower level of living than that which is portrayed as the ideal in the Bible and that's made possible by the indwelling Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And John says that the evidence of this is unmistakable. Chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, how do I know that I'm abiding in Christ and practicing righteousness? Feelings? We have to look at the Word of God so that we're not deceived. John 2:26. I write these things to you, about those who are trying to deceive you. And the Word of God tells us very clearly, chapter 3, verse 19 and following, by this 
we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Now let me ask, which commandment or commandments is he talking about? Just the ones we choose? The ones that are most convenient? Or those that are supported by culture? Who is it the one that defines righteousness anyway? Why is this so important? Why is it so crucial for us because as John says in chapter 2 verse 18 it is the last hour and chapter 2 verse 17 he said the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever Verse 28, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. This is very important to know because the Bible identifies the saints, God's faithful people who are living and bearing witness in the last hour. He identifies them as, as John says in Revelation 14, 12, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. That was written by the same Apostle John. Did he have it right? Justified by grace alone, through faith alone, the born-again believer does the will of God and abides forever. And that's the proof of the power of the gospel. And it all boils down <coughs> to this. What kind of person do I want to be? One who practices unrighteousness, lawlessness, or one who practices righteousness. There is no neutral ground. And the answer is Jesus. We need Jesus. Amen. There's no other way. 
no other way. John wrote some of the most memorable words in the whole Bible. John 3.16. Can you repeat it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's a beautiful one verse summary of the gospel. Now with that said, change our focus a little bit. In this first letter of his, his focus is not on the world that God loved, but on God's people, the church that God loved, that God loves. God's children, in verse, chapter 3, verse 2. And then most, more precisely, chapter 2, verse 18, on the church of the last hour. And it's for that church that it's most crucial to distinguish between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, chapter 4, verse 6. Now, why is the ability to make such a distinction so crucial? It's because it is precisely that church that must clearly understand and courageously fulfill the mission required by the demands of the last hour. And it's that church which must be prepared to meet those demands. You know, when you look at Protestantism today, which has its roots in the Reformation, it's a sad story. Are you aware that many Protestant churches are closing, they're losing members. Why? Because they are abandoning sola scriptura, and God can't bless. And notice that uh, it's the last hour, not the last year, or month, or week, or day, but our getting kind of close, isn't it? Now John has been identified by many, <clears throat> sorry, I don't know what my problem is. Please pray for my voice. But he has been identified by many Bible students as the apostle of love. Would you agree? His favorite reference to himself is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He says that five times in the Gospel of John. Was it egotistical for him to refer to himself in that way? 
Jesus loved all of his disciples. He loves the whole world, even those who, who don't love him. But when you read about John in the New Testament, you get the clear evidence that John had surrendered most completely to the influence of Jesus. And because of that this surrender, his character reflected Jesus more than the others. Compare John with Rash. Peter, for example, John was the most receptive, the most teachable of all of them. It was John to whom Jesus, speaking from the cross, entrusted the care of his own mother. Maybe because he knew that John would live the longest. John was the first disciple to arrive at the tomb of Jesus. He was the first one to understand the mighty significance of, his, of Jesus' resurrection. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, we read that John, who reclined at table close to Jesus, right next to him at the Last Supper, and because of that, that closeness, at one point in the conversation, John leaned back against Jesus. He heard, he saw, he touched the Lord. And Jesus did not rebuke John for that behavior. Jesus did not draw away from John when John leaned on him. He didn't push him away. Rather, Jesus accepted John's closeness and his innocent touch for what it was, the genuine and pure affection of a man for his Lord. It's no wonder that John referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. By the time that John wrote this letter, he was an old man who had seen it all. He was the last survivor of the 12 disciples. Have you been blessed? Who would like to pray? Close our meeting. Dear God, Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Thank you for bringing us here. Three words from your word, Lord. So learn more, so that we can grow and become one as the day nears. And we will be together. Please be with all of us for the rest of the course of this day. Show us and guide us and teach us. Please keep your hand and our teacher's voice as we come back tomorrow, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.